But if you do leave it on, I'll try and work you into my sermon. (laughs) So that you'll never leave it on again. (laughs) If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, where we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 20. Your greatest reason for rejoicing. When you look in the New Testament, I just kind of did a search of different texts in the New Testament just to kind of see what people were rejoicing about in various places. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she became pregnant, rejoiced in God, her Savior. The neighbors of John the Baptist rejoiced uh, at John's birth. The Magi, who rejoiced exceedingly when they saw the star that led them to the baby Jesus, Uh, People rejoiced at the miracles of Jesus during his ministry. The um, shepherd in the parable of the lost sheep rejoiced when that one lost sheep was found. The disciples rejoiced when they saw Jesus after his resurrection. The apostles rejoiced to suffer in Jesus' name. The people of Samaria rejoiced when Philip performed miracles and preached the gospel to them. And Philip himself rejoiced to see some come to Christ. The angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. The Gentiles of Pisidian Antioch rejoice when they heard the gospel. Barnabas rejoiced at the converts at Antioch. The people of Antioch rejoice when the apostles and elders in Jerusalem sent Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas to them. The Philippian jailer rejoiced greatly when he and his household repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul rejoiced over the compassionate zeal of the Corinthians and the Philippians, and he rejoiced over the obedience of those in Rome and Colossae. And these are just, you know, the bulk of the rejoicing texts in the New Testament. There are actually a couple exhortations to rejoice in Philippians uh, chapter three, verse one and four, verse four. We are told to rejoice in the Lord always. And in Romans 12, 12, it tells us to rejoice in hope. So that's pretty much what the New Testament has to say about rejoicing. And yet. We have a lot of things to rejoice in. God even says to be thankful for all things. And he says everything is um, sanctified by the means of the word of God in prayer. And that James says all good things come down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So we have lots of reasons to rejoice. Maybe health, maybe jobs and family and children and friends and cars and stuff. And so, yeah, we have a lot of things to rejoice in. But spiritually speaking, we have this huge thing that we need to rejoice in. And often we don't rejoice in it. We're kind of like the little kid who asked for a whole bunch of things for his birthday. And uh, all the relatives come and bring all those same things. And oh, he's excited about him. He opens him up. And oh, I got my favorite whatever. He's really careful. When other people want to touch it, wait, 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 careful, careful. Don't break it. Here, let me hand it to you. Be careful, be careful. He puts him in his room in his nice little shelf and makes him really neat because he just loves those things. He just, they're so exciting to him. That's kind of how it is when we first get saved, isn't it? Man, we are psyched. We just want to tell everybody. I'm a Christian. You should be one too. And they look at you. You're weird. (laughs) And 
just like the kid after the while, his, his new toys kind of lose their excitement and their joy. And soon they're just toys and they get thrown into a box and they break and they get rid of them later. Well, sometimes we kind of treat our salvation that way. Where at first we're really excited about it. Really thankful. But then after a while it's, yeah, I'm saved. Oh, I can see you're thrilled about that. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to be in heaven with Jesus forever. (laughs) As Howard Hendricks says, their face would make a good frontispiece for the book of Lamentations. But what do you suppose this great reason is for rejoicing? Our text tells us this morning. If you were to answer that question, though, in your mind, okay, my greatest reason for rejoicing is fill in the blank. And then let me ask you this. Is that what you rejoice over most of the time? Now, yeah, we're going to rejoice about a lot of things. But that one huge thing, that thing that towers above all other things. Do you rejoice in it or does your rejoicing actually betray what you say is your greatest reason for rejoicing? You're more excited about your car, your TV, your hobby, your day off than you are about that great thing. And so let's look at what this great thing is. We're presently working through an account Of the sending of the 70, some versions say 72. If your Bible has that, it's because they couldn't make up their mind. The whole point is that Jesus is sending out these 70, 72 disciples to different cities. He's going to send them out in pairs of two, 35 pairs of two. They're going to go around to the various cities that Jesus is going to come to. They have been given power to do miracles, authority to cast out demons, and they're going to preach the gospel as kind of a first flank maneuver to get people primed for Jesus coming after. And so in verses 1 through 12, Jesus gives them all of this instruction. At the very end of verse 12, he says, and I just want you to know, if they reject you, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for that city. So he gives them a little, I just want you to know, if they reject you and your gospels and your miracles, it's going to go really bad for them. Then he wants to give them a little encouragement. He wants to give them a little encouragement because, you know, sometimes... What's discouraged about sharing the gospel is people don't always believe. And you know how it is. I mean, there's been times when I've been so sure someone was going to come to salvation and they're inquisitive and they're asking questions and I'm telling them about the gospel and be very clear, very plain, my heart's racing. And then they go, uh, and then they, they don't want to become a Christian. And so Jesus, after he kind of tells them it's going to go bad for those who reject you. He then goes and says, and it's going to be bad for those who have already rejected me. And I think he tells them that because he wants them to know, listen, I'm the son of God. I am the Messiah. And they reject me too. And so don't be overly bummed. They're not believing because they, they don't even believe me. Most of them. You just go do what you're supposed to do. But those who reject, they are going to be thrown down to hell 
And he just, I mean, if you were here last week, you remember, you know, hair on end warning. But then in verse 17, where our text begins this morning, everything changes. Radical pendulum to the other side from hell to heaven. From unbelievers to believers. Now Jesus totally switches, comes back around, and now he's going to tell them something very incredible. He's going to direct their minds away from judgment, away from hell, the punishment of unbelievers to the glories and the greatest reason for rejoicing that believers have. Now you need to to think about this. As we approach our text, what's going to happen also in verse 17 is in verses 1 through 12, and even on into verse 16, Jesus is, is telling them what to do, what will happen, or what has happened. But then in verse 17, they're coming back. They've already gotten back. We missed the whole journey. Luke just skips ahead to this place when now they're back. With Jesus, they've already gone, they've already preached the gospel, they've done their miracles, they've had their adventures, and now they're back. And you can imagine those disciples going out. I mean, think about it. You know, they're going out in pairs of two, and um, Jesus said, now, here's the cities, and he assigned cities to each of them. So they're on their way. Remember, he said, don't talk to anybody along the way. Get to your city, preach the gospel, do your miracles, cast out the demons, and get back here. So they're on their way. Now... You can imagine this conversation that they're having along the way. One says to another, his little traveling companion, what kind of miracles do you think we're going to do? I don't know. I'm sure we're going to be able to heal people like Jesus and cast out demons. And that's what he said. Oh man, I can't wait. Do you think we'll feel anything? I don't know. I've never done a miracle before. Me either. Man, I love, I can't wait to look at their faces. I love to see that. When Jesus would heal somebody in that first town when we go to, their their just jaws would just hang open. I love that part. And I love that part when they just start praising God and saying, man, God is good. And, and, and the weeping mothers, I hope I can restore sight to a blind man. That would be so great. And the other guy says, yeah, or somebody who's really crippled up. They're going, yeah, let's go, let's go. So they're encouraging each other. They're, they're thinking about what they're going to do. And then they go out and they do it. And we don't know how long they go out. We don't know how many cities were assigned to each of them. All of that is left out by Luke. We're just told, verse 17, they're back. And so look at your Bibles and follow along as I read Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. And the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now, in these verses, we're going to have four events that Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. And then the one ultimate thing. The one great reason that believers should always and continually be rejoicing in. So let's look at the first four things you should not rejoice in. Look at verse 17. 
The 70 returned with joy. Again, Luke has just skipped ahead. We've missed the whole adventure. We don't even know what happens, but they're all back together again. Look at the middle of verse 17. They were saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, in order to understand this, you really understand the Jewish mindset. Jews believed in angels and demons. Like most people today, you know, they believe that, oh, yeah. I mean, they know what angels are and they think they're, you know, women that sit on top of Christmas trees with wings. You know, that's the idea that most people get. They're kind of a nice little fiction, kind of like fairies and and trolls and gnomes. And that's the kind of idea people have. And even though there's television shows about them, they aren't any more convincing than Star Trek. And so people have an idea about angels and demons, but the Jews believed them. They believed in them thoroughly because angels had such a huge part in their history that all Jews believed in them and believed in demons. And some Jews even worshiped angels. Paul addresses that in Colossians. They were so caught up in angels that they actually worshiped them and needed rebuked. As we learned a while back in our series on angels and demons, demons are nothing more than fallen angels, angels who have rebelled. They've been around since creation. They are wise and powerful beings who have just perfected the art of deception, delusion, lies, false doctrine, tricking people into thinking that bad is good and good is bad. Doing everything they can to steal glory from God. And they can outsmart any human. They are stronger than any man. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and following. He's describing false teachers and he says, especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Here the false teachers are described as daring and self-willed. Why? Because they revile angelic majesties. Can you believe it? Is the whole idea. Peter says, can you believe it? They would actually revile an angel? Now are we talking, you know, Demons here? Are we talking holy angels? Well, Peter doesn't say, but Jude does. In Jude, verses 8 and 9, we have a very similar text, again talking about false teachers. It says, yet, in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Then he gives an example. An example. Of how foolish that is. He says in verse 9. But Michael the archangel. Now if you don't know what an archangel is. Archangels are like super angel. Archangel is the highest rank of angel. Michael is the prince. Called the prince. Who is assigned by God to protect the nation of Israel. He is the biggest baddest good angel there is. 
And so it says, Michael, even Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He wouldn't even revile him. Even Michael, the archangel, respects Satan. Respects other angels because they are so powerful. You know, it would be kind of foolish if you went to Africa armed with a feather duster to try and take a lion cub away from its mother. Or maybe to go up into Alaska with a butterfly net to capture a grizzly bear cub away from its mother. That that would be foolish. You would wish you never tried. The 70 were aware that demons were powerful and they were strong and they were to be feared and not messed with. And yet Jesus gave them authority over these incredibly strong beings. And this, again, was a special situation for a special time, for a special purpose in a certain location. And these special gifts, these powers, they aren't normal for all believers. But the point here is that these men return rejoicing. And it's obvious. I mean, you would say, yeah, they were rejoicing. I mean, hey, they got to tell demons what to do. Get out of that person. Get into the abyss. And we're never told to cast out demons or bind Satan or revile angelic majesties in any way. That The 70 could do this and they rejoiced in it and understandably so. Look at verse 18. Now Jesus comments and he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now this is, an, this is a weird little phrase here. Now this has caused interpreters a lot of grief. If you look at commentaries, everybody's trying to guess what it is. There's some different ones. One of the good ones is that Jesus is saying is um, before... In history past, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, if, if that's what it means, it's, there's some problems with it. One, it makes it sound like Jesus is boasting. You know, when guys get together and say, you know, you know, I've got, you know, a car with this big engine. And my other guy says, well, mine's this big. Okay. These people compare. Yeah, the demons were subject to us. Yeah, but I saw Satan fall from heaven. I was there. See, that doesn't work very good with Jesus' character, with his nature, with the context. And besides, that's not what the scriptures teach. See, a lot of people have this idea that when Satan fell morally from heaven, that he was permanently cast down to earth. They confuse his being expelled from heaven with his moral fall. And we should not confuse those two things. Because they're two totally different events. We saw this before. Satan morally fell shortly after creation before Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. When he is in the garden deceiving Eve in the form of a serpent. But we see him in heaven in Job chapters 1 and 2, right? When, when, when they come to give an account, the sons of God, the angels give an account before the Lord and Satan is among them. We see him again in Zechariah 3 accusing Joshua in that vision in heaven. 
We also see him again, in, in, or at least he's implied, as one of the forces of darkness and the spiritual, in the heavenly places in Ephesians 6. And then in Revelation 12, he is the accuser of the brethren who is before the throne of God, accusing the brethren day and night. That doesn't sound like an expulsion, does it? It's not. But in Revelation 12, it says at that time in the tribulation, he is cast down to earth. And then he goes forth with great rage because he realizes time is short. So Jesus couldn't be referring to that because it hasn't happened yet. So the question is, what is he referring to? And although a lot of bad interpretations have been offered, I think the best one is this. You need to re- ask yourself, what does Jesus say this in response to? They say, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus says in response to that, to their being sent out, healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching the gospel, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That is when you did that. Now, all I think he's saying is this. When I sent you 35 pairs of, you know, miracle working, demon exercising evangelists out. Satan's kingdom received a moral blow. Not a moral blow, a huge blow. Just a Brought, was brought down. The word fall, when it says, I was seeing Satan fall, can be translated to fall under judgment, to collapse or to come to ruin. And that makes it a little understandable, doesn't it? When you went out and did your evangelizing, when you exposed the, the errors of darkness, when you brought the light to people, when you cast out demons, Satan's kingdom received this great collapse. I mean, all over that area, all of a sudden in one time, like lightning, which of course, lightning always happens suddenly and strikes in an area where you don't expect, you can't predict it. And that's what happened with Satan. That's all I think he's saying there. If you can find another better interpretation, it's great. That's the one I think works best. He's just figuratively speaking that when they went out and did their works, Satan was like he was kicked off his throne. Look at the beginning of verse 19. Jesus says, behold. Now, whenever Jesus says, behold, that word means listen up, listen carefully, pay very close attention because what I'm going to tell you is really important. Behold, and now Jesus mentions these four things. These four things were not to rejoice in. First, look at the middle of verse 19. I have given you authority to tread on serpents. Now, there are two ways this can be taken. Either you're saying, you know, you can go around, walk through the valley of the rattlesnakes. They can bite your ankles and it won't hurt. Or he's using it figuratively. Serpents represented evil because it was Satan in the form of a serpent who deceived Eve. And so serpents were often pictured as evil, cunning, crafty, and dangerous since they delivered a deadly sting. Not only that, look at verse 19 again. You'll see that he says, and scorpions. Scorpions, like serpents, were feared by men just like they are feared today. Have you ever been camping in the desert and found a scorpion in your sleeping bag? No, that's why you zip up the tent because you do not want them getting in. And scorpions can deliver sometimes deadly stings. They're dangerous. They're to be feared. I think all that Jesus is saying here is that I've given you authority over those powers of evil, over those things that are dangerous. Why would I say that? Because of what he says. Thirdly, look at the end of verse 19 and over all the power of the enemy. 
over all the power of the enemy. Now Jesus kind of interprets what he's talking about. And if you read down a little bit further than that, you will see that he goes on to say that the spirits are subject to you. Verse 20. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about their authority because that's what they're rejoicing over. They're rejoicing over their power over evil, over these things that they feared and were dangerous in the mind of a Jew. They had power of God to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to expose lies, to bring forth the truth. And that's what they did. And then he says, fourthly, at the end of verse 18, and nothing will injure you in the context of that. Now, why would he say that? Why do you think he'd say that nothing would injure you? Do you think he's saying you'll never be persecuted from now on? You're never going to have to worry about ever stubbing your toe, you know, getting poked by a splinter, um, cutting yourself, shaving, nothing. You'll never have to get injured again. Oh, no, obviously not. He's talking about and nothing in the future will injure you in relationship to their going out and casting out these demons and healing the sick and preaching the gospel. Why would they even think that? Because demons are powerful. Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about reprisals. You know, what if Jesus were to tell you, you know, go fetch the lion club with the feather duster or the bear cub with the butterfly net. You'd be thinking to yourself, now, Jesus, this is a little dangerous. No, it's suicidal. You see, to do something like that would be very dangerous. And you know it would be dangerous. And you'd be worried about doing that because you wouldn't want to get hurt. Well, now they've just gone out. And they've just dealt this huge blow to Satan's kingdom. They've preached the gospel. They've undone what Satan has worked to do. And then their fear is, I wonder if something's going to happen to us. No, nothing is going to happen to you. Nothing is going to injure you. There are not going to be any demonic attacks or reprisals. You know, I'm, I'm pretty surprised at how believers sometimes are very fearful of this. If you are a believer, you don't need to fear demonic attack. Yes, they can tempt you. Yes, they can use unbelievers to maybe persecute you, but they can, they're not going to haunt you. They're going to get in your life and get in your closet and your toaster and your car. You don't have to go in there and chase them out of rooms and, you know, sprinkle holy water and do all this different stuff trying to, you know, make sure they don't get you. They can't get you. They can't get you. Listen to what the scriptures say. Now listen to this. Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to. You will be able to. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. God has given you the resources so that you will be able to stand against his schemes. And those are just schemes to tempt you, not possess you or haunt you. James 4, 7 says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will flee from you. God says so, which means if you submit to God, Satan will flee from you. First John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit and Christ are in you. You don't have to worry about being possessed. You don't have to worry about, you know, Satan getting you. You have God Almighty within. 
First John 5.18, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Does not touch him. The evil one does not touch believers. That's how it is. So you don't have to worry about demons getting you, sneaking up on you when you're asleep at night and haunting you or whatever. They will not touch you. God's word is crystal clear about that. If you know Jesus, yes, they can tempt you. Yes, they can entice you. Yes, they can use other people to make your life miserable. But you don't have to worry about any reprisals because... You have the spirit of God within you. You have the promise of God that they're not going to hurt you. And this is what these believers needed to know. They've just gone out and undone. You know, they've gone into Satan's domain and the same thing happens to you. You go out and share your faith. You witness to somebody. You're thinking, ah, Satan's not going to like this. And he doesn't. And he's going to get me. No, he is not. He is not going to injure you. He will not touch you. That is the word of God. That is a promise. So you don't even need to worry about that. Now, what if you don't know Christ? Well, that's a whole different thing. If you don't know Christ, then it's not that Satan is going to get you. He's got you. You are held captive by Satan to do his will. You know, the Bible calls unbelievers children of Satan. Do you know why that is? It's not because he literally gave birth to them. It's that Satan is in rebellion against God and unbelievers are in rebellion against God. Satan lives for himself. Unbelievers live for themselves. Satan tries to undo the things of God. Unbelievers try to undo the things of God. They are both on the same side, fighting against the same God, refusing to submit to the same God, refusing to give their creator glory the same. And so in that way, They are children of Satan because he has deluded them. And whether they admit it or not, they're actually living for the very purpose that Satan lives. And so you need to come to Christ. You need to give your life to Jesus. And when you do that, then you receive the Holy Spirit. Then God changes you. And then the evil one does not touch you. Uh, You go out and share your faith and get ready. Now turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 is a very fun text that I would like to preach on someday. But I just haven't preached through Acts and I just haven't found that perfect moment for this unique text. But it is a good one. Acts 19 verses 13 through 16. Paul is at Ephesus performing miracles. There's some Jews there. They're watching Paul. They're seeing Paul do these miracles, cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And they're thinking, well, well, we could try that. We we could do that. And so they're kind of looking at Jesus' name as kind of a spiritual incantation. Kind of like magical verbiage. That, hey, it's working for this Paul guy. Let's try it. And this is what we read in verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they're seeing Jesus as they don't know Jesus. They're unbelievers. But they're seeing Jesus as kind of a a name, an incantation that seems to be working for this one guy. So let's try it out. 
Look at verse 14. Seven sons of one Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? That's when they realized they had a feather duster. (laughs) And they were standing in front of the lion. Look at verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, subdued all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Imagine that one. One demon-possessed guy takes out seven men, gives them a sound thrashing, rips off their clothes, and then kicks them out the door into utter humiliation. I wonder if they ever used Jesus' name after that. Probably not. Let's not do that one again. That's what happens when you don't know Jesus and you try to go up against the powers of evil. This is why Jesus wanted the 70 to know nothing will injure you. And it's why he wants you to know the same thing. The evil one will not touch you. But you can see in all of this why the 70 returned rejoicing, can't you? I mean, they had some thrilling times, I am sure, doing miracles and casting out demons and seeing all this power, just having this incredible power working through them. They just came back and said, man, even the demons did whatever we told them, man. Stand on your head into the abyss, out, in, out, in, you know, Um, who knows? I'm sure they probably didn't do that. But yeah, they're rejoicing. They're rejoicing. But yet. Jesus says, don't rejoice in those things, which is kind of interesting. It's like, why not, man? These are incredible. Yeah, but there's something that's way more incredible, way more wonderful, way more exciting than that. And what is it? Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Now, just stop there. Now, is Jesus saying this? Listen, don't rejoice in these things or anything else. Don't rejoice in your food. Don't rejoice in friends, family, children, anything else. I don't want you to rejoice in anything. Only this and this only. Is that what he's saying? No, that's, that's not what he means. Let's say you're walking down the sidewalk. And, uh, you know, you're just going for a walk. You're getting a little exercise. You're cruising down the sidewalk. And uh, there in the sidewalk is a dollar bill. So you kind of pick it up and you look around. No one's around. It's like, I got a dollar. You're going to put it in your pocket and you keep walking, you know, because now you can buy. What can you buy with a dollar these days? A pack of gum, I guess. Um, but, you know, it's better than a penny, which is just, you know, you just leave it there. Uh, so anyways, you're walking down the street and you're kind of, you know, psyched. You found this little dollar. But then all of a sudden you're walking up ahead. And you turn the corner and you're walking and there's a, there's a suitcase in the middle of the sidewalk. And you're thinking, what is that? So you go up there. And there's a little card and it says open and you open it up and there's a little note in there and says, I'm an older gentleman. I've worked all my life to accumulate wealth. Um, I don't have any family. I realize I've been selfish. I've never blessed anybody with my wealth. And so I've dropped off several suitcases around the city and I'm giving you one of them and you can have the contents and use it in whatever you want. Man, you throw that thing open, you pop open the lid and it's just full of tightly packed $100 bills. Now that is exciting. (laughs) So you close it up, man. You start dragging that thing home. 
Adrenaline's flowing, man. You bring it up the steps and into the house. You open up the door and you say, man, you won't believe what happened. I found a dollar bill. (laughs) Is that what you say? Well, forget the dollar. You got a whole suitcase of money. And that's Jesus' point. That's his whole point. We get so excited about cars and stuff destined to perish. We get excited about, yes, the blessings of God, and we should be thankful for them. Don't don't get me wrong here. Jesus isn't given the universal command of only rejoice in one thing. But in comparison, your name being recorded in heaven outstrips all other things to rejoice in. Look at the end of verse 20. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That is incredible. And I think a lot of times we don't really think about this enough. You know, one good thing that is such a blessing is to get around people who love to pray and love the Lord. You go to prayer meeting on Wednesday night or maybe you're just sitting around with a group of believers. You're praying and and it always comes up. Lord, thank you for my salvation. Thank you for saving me. And you hear people just pouring out their heart. Oh, Lord, thank you for blessing me. I was such a sinner. You know, and and believers who love the Lord rejoice and continually rejoice that their names are recorded in heaven. Now, what is that a reference to? Well, the scriptures talk about this. They talk about God keeping records. Now you think, well, are these literal records? I think so. Because it talks about the books being opened and things like that. For instance, in Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, we read this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and those who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. The word is literally jewels or treasure. When I prepare my own jewels or treasure, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The whole point is, is God remembers the righteous and he records them in heaven. He writes down their name in heaven. In Philippians chapter four, verse three, Paul speaks his fellow laborers in the gospel as those whose names are written in the book of life. Jesus speaking to the church of Sardis in Revelation three, five says he overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. Think about that. Think about that. I mean, it is thrilling to, you know, to go to Ellis Island and see your great, great, great grandpa there in the registry that he came over from Ireland in, you know, 1902. And that's great. It's neat to go to the World War II Memorial and see your grandfather or the Vietnam Memorial and see a brother or see an uncle there who fought and died in the war. It's great, but it's nothing. It is nothing compared to having your name recorded in the book of life and to have your name confessed before the father and the angels. Think about it. Think about what it's going to be like. I mean, you finally get to heaven. You either die and get there or whatever, rapture, get there. 
And you're all there with all the saints of all the ages. And there's Jesus on the throne and some angels bring this book. And it is a huge book. You know, maybe it has a gold cover and maybe it's embossed with a tree of life in the front. Who knows? And they just lay it on this big gold stand right in front of Jesus and they pop it open. And pretty soon it comes down to the time when your name is called. And you step forward and Christ says, the angels is his or her name recorded in the book. And they turn the pages and they say, yes, Lord, right here, written in your own blood. And then Jesus confesses you before the father and all the holy angels and all the saints and says, this is my brother, my sister. I died for this one. Their names are recorded in the book of life. And that is your greatest reason for rejoicing. You know why? Your name gets in that book. You get everything with it. Everything. You get your name in the book, you get everything with it. Everything that omnipotence, all powerfulness and perfect wisdom and all knowledge can conjure up in your direction for all eternity. Revelation 17, 8 says those names were put there before the foundation of the world. Think about that. That Jesus already knew the elect, already had chosen them, already predestined them salvation. And all of a sudden, here you are, and your name is in that book. I'm telling you, there are masses of people, the majority of people, whose names are not written in that book. They will perish in hell. And you know what? Your name didn't get in that book because you were good. That God looked down and said, oh, well, there's this sweet, kind, loving, wonderful creature. I'm going to save that one. No, you were enemies. You were hostile to God. You were estranged. You were engaged in evil deeds. And God, by his grace, because of his own purpose, not because of the man who wills, the man who runs, but upon the God who has mercy and only that, and that's all, but his free sovereign choice chose you, put your name in that book, had his son die for you, and one day you will see your name in that book. And with it, you will get all the scriptures promise and more that they don't even mention. Those things which eye has not seen or ear heard or even entered into the heart of man, that the glories of that present time are not worthy to be compared with the, with the, or the, the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that we will receive. That God will just give us blessing, just incalculable blessing because our names are in that book. And it's just a, the, the indication that we are truly saved. So we get all the things that salvation believe, that brings us. Everything. Because of that Lamb's book of life. And because your name is in that book. Now if your name is not in that book, you need to get it in there. Now you may be thinking, but Jack, you just told me it was written before the foundation of the world. And, you know, I don't know if I'm one of the elect. Repent and believe and then you'll know. That's what the scriptures have to tell you. Repent and believe and then you'll know. You will know. And if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, I just don't know. I don't know if I'm saved and I don't know if my name is, is in that book. You can know right now. 
Get it in there. It's like, well, I thought it's already in there. It is. Well, why are you telling me that it would get in there? All I'm saying is you'll know for certain it's there. If you give your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ. You may be sitting out there. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if my name is written there. I'm too great of a sinner. No, you're not. Oh, you don't know what I've done. God does. The scriptures say, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Yeah, but I've really sinned. Oh, so your sin is greater than Christ's perfect sacrifice. Oh, no, that's right. It's not. So that's not an excuse. But, but I don't, I have questions. I don't understand predestination. And where did evil come from? Well, who knows? Who cares? Get your name in the book. No, it's in the book. That's the deal. Let me ask you this. Do you think that you're going to find answers to those questions as you continually rebel against God? As you live in a spiritually dead state? Or do you have a better chance of finding answers to those questions when you come to Christ, receive the Holy Spirit that illuminates the truth of God's word so we can understand what God says? You believe that you might know. You don't know that you might believe. So just set that aside and ask yourself this. Are you a sinner? Did Christ die for you? Does he say, whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life? Then do it. And then you'll know your name is in that book. And it's been in there before the foundation of the world. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let your sins and your lust for the world and your excuses be a smokescreen or some excuse or procrastination method to try and keep you from doing what you know you need to do just do it today just give it up receive christ turn from your sins believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead and you will be saved you'll know your name is written in that book and it will never change and it'll be that way forever and with it you get everything you get everything and that's why it's your greatest reason to rejoice I mean, just think about this. I just sat down there. I just penned out 12 because there's 12 apostles. Actually, I ran out of space. Here it is. Your name is in that book. That means you are adopted into the family of God. That's kind of cool. You fellowship with the angels. You're going to fellowship with the angels. With angels. You will rule and reign with Christ forever. You will sing a new song in heaven. You will never grow old. You'll never get sick. You'll never die. You will be perfect and holy without sin. You'll never think another sinful thought again, nor will you ever do another sinful deed. You will worship the Lord in Zion. Some say, where are you going to live? Well, I'm going to live in Zion. You will fellowship with the saints of all the ages. You will witness the judgment of Satan and demons and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all the unbelievers of all the ages who will not submit to Christ. You will serve Christ and rule and reign with him forever. You will be a priest and you will be a co-regent, a royal priest. That is, you will have both king, kinghood or queenhood or however you want to look at, look at it. You will be a priest and king to our God. 
forever and ever. You will stand before Christ blameless with great joy. You will dwell in the new Jerusalem, the city of God described at the end of the revelation. You will see Jesus face to face, be able to talk to Jesus face to face, ask him questions and stand before him blameless with great joy. I mean, that's just the beginning. And all because your names are recorded in heaven, because you know Jesus, because you have salvation. But, you know, you may be sitting out there and you may be thinking to yourself, but Jack, I, I realize I, I need to rejoice. But, you know, when you brought this up, it kind of makes me convicted because I don't rejoice like I should. I mean, as a matter of fact, when I think back to last month, I can't even remember a single time when I was thankful about my salvation or rejoiced that my name was recorded in, the, in heaven. So, so what can I do? Let me give you four things. These are just four things that will help you keep your mind focused on the things above and rejoicing continually like Jesus commands you to do in this text. The first is, and this may seem a little weird, meditate on your sinfulness. Now you think that sounds kind of depressing, not rejoicing. No, it's, it's the right thing. Because you will never understand how how great God's grace is towards you until you understand how great a sinner you are. When you just cry out like Paul, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you're just so sick of your sin and I did it again and I failed the Lord again and ah. When you get to that place in your life and yet you know Christ died for you and you were ungodly. Why you were an enemy. That you were the unjust and Christ the just died for you. When you understand that, it makes you rejoice. You just think, oh Lord, you are so good. I am so bad. And the clearer you see your badness, the greater you will see God's grace and salvation. And that will make you rejoice. Secondly, saturate your mind with the word of God. You know, we have so many things that try and get into our head. You know, all this advertisement. It's, the other day I was at a store and I was walking down the aisle and there were some radios there. And one, one of them had this radio and there was this lady on there advertising something. And I grabbed this thing and I started flicking all the buttons just to turn her off. Say, <laughs> like, be quiet. I don't want to listen to what I need to buy. I've got plenty. But just read the Bible. Go to a Bible study. Get involved with a small group. Listen to sermons on CD or your MP3 player. Read good books that are saturated in the scriptures. Just get the word of God in you. And when you do that, you'll be constantly reminded about heaven and God's grace and salvation. And it will make you rejoice. Third, remember what Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. You go home and stick a, a note on your mirror and pull it on the dash of your car. Think about heaven. When you're driving down the freeway, instead of turning on the news and hearing the same bunch of junk every single day with the same guys you know are trying to be funny just turn it off and just ask yourself questions like okay what's it going to be like when i see jesus what's it going to be like after that and what are the angels actually going to look like they're going to be like those you know made up women with little lace wings that sit on top of the christmas tree are they going to be something else you know what are they going to look like and 
what, what's my first conversation with the Apostle Paul going to be like? And Stephen and Abraham and Jacob and Daniel. And what's my wife going to look like in heaven when she's not my wife anymore? Now, how is that going to be? How am I going to treat other people in heaven? And when I see my wife there, it's going to be weird not being married to her anymore. Or my husband. Or people who have died. Just do that. I'm telling you. You'll have plenty to think about. Keep your mind fixed on the things above. Pursue those things. Fourth, fellowship with other believers and talk about these things. It's so great to get together with other believers and you're sitting down for dinner. So tell me, how'd you come to the Lord? People are sharing their testimonies. And so what's the Lord been teaching you? And you all talk about, oh, I've been reading this in my Bible study. Oh, I've been studying this. I've been reading this good book. And I'll listen to this good tape or whatever. And just to talk about the things of the Lord and what God is doing in your life. Rejoice in that. These are all things that will help you rejoice. Charles Spurgeon in his devotion, Morning and Evening, writes... In the morning entry of January 10th, these words. And just think about them. We'll close with this. Doubting one, thou hast often said, I fear I shall never enter heaven. Fear not. All the people of God shall enter there. I love the quaint saying of the dying man who exclaimed, I have no fear of going home. I have sent all before me. God's finger is on the latch of my door and I'm ready for him to enter. But, says one, are you not afraid lest you should miss your inheritance? Nay, said he, nay, there is one crown in heaven which the angel Gabriel could not wear. It will fit no head but mine. There is one throne in heaven which the apostle Paul could not fill. It was made for me and I shall have it. Oh, Christian, what a joyous thought. Your portion is secure. There remains a rest. But could I not forfeit it? No, it is entailed. And if I be a child of God, I shall not lose it. It is mine as securely as if I were there. Come with me, believer, and let us sit upon the top of Nebo and view the goodly land, even Canaan. Do you see that little river of death glistening in the sunlight across it? Do you see the pinnacles of the eternal city? Do you mark the pleasant country and all its joyous inhabitants? Know then. That if you could fly across, you would see written upon one of its many mansions, this remains for such a one, preserved for him only. He shall be caught up to dwell forever with God. Poor doubting one, see the fair inheritance. It is yours. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, You and if you have repented of your sins, if you have been renewed in your heart, you are one of the Lord's people. And there is a place reserved for you, a crown laid up for you, a harp specially provided for you. No one else shall have your portion. It is reserved in heaven for you, and you shall have it ere long. For there shall be no vacant thrones in glory when all the chosen are gathered in end quote that's something to rejoice about so let's pray father we are so grateful that you save us that is our greatest reason for rejoicing that though we all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way you have caused the iniquity of us all to fall on you 
And you have called us all to repent and believe. And you have saved many of us. And Father, we know that your promises never fail. That there is that crown, there is that place prepared for us in heaven. And so we don't need to worry about what this life may bring us because we are sure of the hope of eternal life because you in your blood penned down our name in your book of life and it can never be erased. Father, we asked that if there are people here who have never repented of their sins, who for whatever reason have stayed placing their faith in Christ right now, Father, I beg you to open their heart. Give them a desire for Jesus that is unquenchable. Help them to cry out in their heart and say, I am a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me and I receive him as my savior. I believe he rose from the dead. And Father, save them and change them and give them that peace and that assurance and that perpetual reason for rejoicing that their names are recorded in heaven. Blessed be your name for saving unworthy sinners. May we always rejoice in our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.